0: My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of serving us this morning in the reading and teaching of God's Word. And so we are going to pick up our journey through the book of Judges this morning, and we're going to spend our time in Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5. So as you begin to find that space in your Bible, I will, I will try to set us up with a little bit of, of external context for what we're going to see this morning. So I know that when I say this, I'm going to date myself for the majority of people in here, but I want you to go back with me, if you're even capable of doing this, to the year 1990. And for some of you, well, you were just a sparkle at 1990. But 1990, if you don't know or can't remember, America still believed that Millie Vanilli sang all their songs. We gave them five American Music Awards that year. So if you're troubled by the gullibility of American people now... Not much has changed, five awards that year. I was an awkward freshman at North Atlanta High School. And if time travel were possible and you were to go back and meet the 14, 15 year old me in 1990, you you would not be surprised to find that I was focused on two things. One, how to be the next Boris Becker or Roberto Baggio, just depended if it was tennis season or soccer season. two, How to start a conversation with Jennifer Vasquez. That was it. How was I going to be a professional athlete and how was I going to talk to Jennifer Vasquez? I didn't have time to wait until I was a professional athlete to talk to Jennifer Vasquez. That's all I could think about. Um, And if you asked me, if you met me, uh, the 14, 15-year-old me to tell you and asked me to tell you about Jennifer, I could give you all kinds of details about her. I could list all kinds of facts about her, but if you were to ask me to tell you anything meaningful about her, all I could tell you was that whenever we were near each other, my stomach felt strange. That was it. Um, Ask me another time to tell you about when she invited me to her quinceanera. Yeah, that was not one of the high points of my young adulthood. Um, But that summer, when I was 14 years old, 15 years old, um, I had to take an entire year of foreign language. I had transferred schools into a a program that required four years of language, so I was a year behind, and so they gave me the option to take an entire year of language that summer, and they gave me the options of French or Spanish. (laughs) Jennifer Vasquez, (laughs) Spanish. Um, So I had to go to school almost all day during the summer because I had to take an entire year over the course of a summer. And what would happen is I would go to class, and when I got done with the class, I would walk. A few blocks down the way from where my high school was in the city to a bookstore in Atlanta called the Oxford Bookstore, in the middle of the city. And I would spend the afternoon there doing work or reading or walking over somewhere else to eat, just wait for my mom to come get me. And on one particular day that summer, when I was in the bookstore, I managed to make my way over to the poetry section of the bookstore, remembering a group of poets that we had studied that freshman year in high school called the Romantics. And again, trying to figure out how to start a conversation with Jennifer Vasquez. I've wound up with The Collected Works of Lord Byron in my hand. And I will never forget that day, 15 years old, Oxford Bookstore, Atlanta, Georgia, sitting down, I opened that book and I thought the world stopped spinning for a minute. I looked down and began to read and, and she walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies and all the best of dark and bright meet in her aspects And her eyes, thus mellowed to that tender light, which heaven to gaudy day denies. And I kept reading, and I thought the world stopped. And I immediately thought, that guy met Jennifer Vasquez. (laughs) And it was the first time probably in my life where I consciously realized that there was a way and a gift that artists, poets, writers, storytellers, lyricists, a gift that they had to take the ordinary and make it shine. You ask me about her, I could give you some facts. But the poet put words to what was meaningful and feeling to me. And I say all that not just to make you laugh and give you a little piece of my history, but because this morning as we pick up the story in the life of God's people in the book of Judges, we're going to look at an episode in the life of God's people, and we're going to get two perspectives. In chapter four, we're going to get the story of what went on, but in chapter five, we're going to get a song about it. In chapter four, we're going to get the prose of the history of what was going on, but in chapter five, the poet is going to let us know what was happening there. And you see, when we take the prose or the story and we bring it together with the poem or the song, a picture begins to rise up off the pages. See, a picture of a conquering warrior, a picture of a conquering king. It takes the story and it takes the song. And as we go through this episode in the life of God's people, there is a question that is woven through these two. As these two things come together and this picture begins to rise up off the page, it's meant for God's people when they would hear the story read or when they would tell it to their family for history, as this story in the life of God's people would be reminded to God's people, the question going on in their brain is meant to be, have you forgotten? Have you you forgotten that your God is a warrior. Have you forgotten that your God is a warrior and not just any warrior, but a warrior who conquers his enemies to the uttermost. He doesn't just conquer his enemies, he vanquishes them, he humiliates them for his glory and the good of his people. If you've got your Bible, We're going to start in chapter four. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go through the story. We're going to read through the the prose, but we're going to grab the poem and bring it in. We're going to let the song and the poem bring some shine and some life to the story to make some meaning begin to rise up off the pages. And I encourage you this week, take some time at home or with your friends as you're going through God's word, read the story and read the song. We I mean, read them both and enjoy them both, but this morning we're going to take a pieces of the song and put them back with the story and see what begins to come off the page for God's people. So we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to be introduced again to the cycle of what's going on here. So the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagaim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for Sisera had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So you're introduced again to the cycle of judges. Twelve times we're going to see this take place. God's people are going to fall into idolatry and sin. God is going to judge them for their sin by giving them over into the hands of one of their enemies. They are going to suffer the consequences of their sin under the hands of their enemies for differing periods of time, until they, and then they're going to cry out to the Lord. In their suffering, in their pain, they're going to cry out. And here we see what's happening in this episode. God has given his people over to the oppression of the king of Canaan. And what's really driving the people of Israel crazy and what's causing them to cry out is the fear that's being generated in their hearts, not just because of Jabin, the king of Canaan, but in particular because of his general Sisera. Sisera had built one of the world's most impressive war machines at this particular time. And he was using his war machine to oppress the people of God. And under that oppression and judgment, they cry out. They cry out to God in their pain. Now, again, flip over to chapter 5. Let's let the poet bring some life to what's actually happening here. Those are the details. Those are the pros. But how do you make it shine? How can you get your hands around it? Chapter 5, look in verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, the the son of Anath, so remember Shamgar was the judge right after Ehud last week. So now at the end of his days, going into where we are now, in the days of Jael, we're going to meet her in a minute. Listen to the picture of life for God's people in this time. The highways were abandoned, travelers kept to the byways. God's people didn't even travel down the main roads anymore. So afraid of Sisera and his armies and his oppression and what he was doing to God's people, they no longer even use the roads. They go through hidden routes to get them where they need to go. The villagers, verse 7 says, ceased in Israel. No more life amongst God's people together in the villages. People stayed to themselves. People didn't come out to the main gathering places anymore for fear of what might happen to them. Villagers ceased in Israel until until I arose. I, Deborah, arose, a mother in Israel. We'll meet her in a minute. But verse 8 helps us understand how all this came to be and the extent of what was happening. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel. So the poet tells us that in this time of great fear, when God's people didn't travel on the roads anymore, they didn't come out of their homes into the life together anymore for fear of what would happen to them. When the enemy came to the gates of the villages, they didn't even put up any resistance. Amongst 40,000, it's meant to give a big picture, amongst all the people of Israel, they weren't even making shields anymore. They weren't even trying anymore. That's what life was like for God's people under the hand of Sisera, and it was because we're clued in, new gods were chosen amongst God's people. We see it over and over and over again in the book of Judges, and we'll talk more about it every single week. This is always the problem, because God's people have chosen new gods. Idolatry is always underneath what's happening in the lives of God's people when God gives them over to that which they so desperately seemed to want. And he gives them over to what will become oppressive to them. That's what it looked like for them fear, bone chilling fear. That was how they felt. The story picks up in verse 4 of chapter 1. 4. Go back. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Laphidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. And we know in chapter five, in the song about the season, that Deborah was a mother in Israel. She saw herself as a mother of God's people. So what the writer is doing, so you have got to remember how this would have been done. This would have been read out loud or it would have been spoken out loud amongst the families and the villages and the stories would have been told. So the way the writer writes this particular story is he knows in your mind already is the cycle of how things work. God's people sin, they get sent into oppression, they cry out, so God's going to raise up a deliverer. So immediately the writer takes the camera and he zooms it in on this woman, Deborah. And you're meant to begin to give your focus to Deborah. She's the next one that you meet. And you find that she was a prophetess. That she spoke the word of the Lord to the people. That she was a a mother of Israel in this time of great fear. That she expressed and, and, and walked in a particular wisdom amongst God's people. And so immediately your thought and your expectation is that this is the one that's going to deliver Israel. How unexpected. Like Ehud and like Shamgar. But unlike them, it was a woman. What, what are we going to, to make of that? Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the big picture of the season and the story. And then next week, we're going to talk particularly about her, about Deborah, about the characters in this story, and what we see of how God works and uses his people in his kingdom for his glory throughout all of time. But right now, you need to pay attention. and that The writer is trying to focus your attention onto something that you're not expecting. This is not what you would expect. Where's Othniel? Where's the warrior with the pedigree in the name? Where's Shamgar that can take out 600 with one ox goad? There's 900 chariots of iron coming against God's people. Where, where are they? Verse 6, Deborah sent and summoned for Barak the son of Abinim from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and with his troops, and I will give them into to your hands. Oh, listen to it like they would have heard it. Now the camera moves. We've met someone else. Now we meet Barak he's going to lead the army. Remember, a judge isn't judicial. When they talk about the judges, we're not talking about someone who sat and presided over civil cases of judicial. Judge, in the sense of judges, means a deliverer. So far, all the judges that we've met were military deliverers. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, camera focuses on Barak. He's going to lead the army. Oh, this is the one. This is who we're supposed to pay attention to now. Now we're supposed to see him. And you need to understand in a bit what's actually being asked of Barak. So when he gets summonsed by the prophet of Israel, Deborah speaks the word of the Lord to him. Deborah tells him to call up 10,000 men of two particular tribes, Naphtali and Zebulun. Now if you go look at a map of the tribes of Israel in that particular time, you'll notice that Naphtali and Zebulun were in lands that were primarily agrarian. These were farming tribes. These aren't warriors. Barak, the military general, gets called by the prophetess to hear the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord comes to him and says, take 10,000 fighting farmers. That's what I want you to do. Take 10,000 fighting farmers and head to Mount Tabor. And if you're anything like me, when you hear Mount anything, your mind thinks Rockies, Everest, Alps, mountains. So I had forgotten about Mount Tabor. So I went back to an encyclopedia, a Bible encyclopedia to look up Mount Tabor this week. And I just had the wrong thing in my head. Mount Tabor is not a mountain like you and I picture it. Mount Tabor looks like an upside down bowl. It's more of a mound. It's not a mountain. It's a rounded mound. So Barak comes to the prophet. The prophet speaks the word of the Lord to him and says, take 10,000 fighting farmers up on the mount, and I'm gonna call up Sisera and his 900 chariots of iron. That's what was being asked of Sisera. And the writer's writing it now because now your expectation has shifted. Oh, this is the deliverer. This is the one that God is raising up to do what seems absolutely impossible. But the story keeps going. Verse eight, Barak says to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you won't go with me, I won't go. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you. There are two ways of understanding what's happening here, and it's very important to the story. Historically, there are two schools of understanding this verse. One says that Barak recognized Deborah as a prophet of God, speaking the word of the Lord to him, and he did not want to go without the word of the Lord. It would remind you of a time in Israel's history when Moses was called up to the mountain in Exodus 33, I believe, 30, 33, 33, and God shows Moses the land of promise, what we're talking about now, and says, I'm going to give it to you, I'm going to let all of you go, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses responds to God and says, if you don't go with me, I don't want to go. I don't want the land, I don't want the promise, I don't want all that you've given us if I don't get you. If you don't come, I don't want to go, I want you. So some people read verse 8 like Barak is speaking to Deborah in response in a way that Moses was speaking. You speak the word of the Lord. I don't want to go without the word of the Lord. So if you'll come with me, I'll go. The other school of thought says that Barak was summoned by the prophet of God and the word of the Lord was spoke to him. And the word of the Lord said, take 10,000 farmers and go up on that mound and I'm going to call 900 chariots of iron and the biggest war machine history has ever seen to come towards you. And Barack says, hmm, if you're really a prophet, and you're really speaking the word of the Lord, then you should have no problem going with me, because that means if God actually defeats you, you're not going to be in any harm or any danger. If you go, I'll go. If you're so confident that this is God's word, you'll have no problem coming with me. If you'll do it, I'll do it. And in a sense, Barack is testing the word of the Lord and testing the prophet of God as to whether or not she really was a prophet and whether or not this really was God's word because he was being commanded to go on a suicide mission. 10,000 farmers, 900 chariots of iron. I land over here. And the Barak heard what was asked of him and he began to test whether or not it was truly the word of the Lord. So, Deborah responds to him. Look at verse 9. I will surely go with you. It's fine, I'm going to go with you. But here's the deal Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and, and went with Barak to Kadesh. So, Barak isn't going to be our big deliverer because now the glory isn't going to be his because God's going to give it to the hand of a woman. Well, is it Deborah that he's going to give it to? But Deborah doesn't lead the army, she's not Joan of Arc. She's not the military deliverer. What's go- the camera's now going all over the place. The, the, the unexpected expectations of God's people in the story and what they're meant to feel and hear as they read it are now swirling because we don't know what's actually going to happen. And so verse 10 comes and Barak calls out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh and 10,000 fighting farmers went up at his heels and Deborah went up with them. And then you get this interesting little interlude in verse 11 that plays a role in a few minutes. Haber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites and the descendants of Hobab, the father in law of Moses. So you read about this man named Heber, who was a Kenite. He's descendants of the father in law of Moses. So since Moses' time, his people have experienced the blessing of God through the Israelites as they have been with the Israelites since Moses' time because his ancestor was Moses' father-in-law. So God had promised Abraham, the nations will be blessed through you. And you see throughout the story from that point forward, various peoples of different tribes being blessed as they were connected to God's people, Israel. This man and his descendants, at best, were Israeli sympathizers because they had experienced the blessing of God through God's people because his ancestor was Moses' father-in-law. But now, out of nowhere, you hear about him, and he's moving his tent away from his people out geographically into the middle of nowhere. And the writer doesn't tell you why. He just moves on. So I'm just going to move on. Verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abanim, had gone to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Haoshath hagaim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, "'Up, up, for this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you?' So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So 10,000 fighting farmers are on top of the mound, easily surrounded by onrushing chariots of iron, very vulnerable to this incredible war machine that's charging at them. And you expect as they rush down this mound, the rider to give you this epic, like brave heart battle. The rider just says, the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hashoeth, Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not one man was left, but Sisera fled away on foot. I wanted a big battle. I wanted a big clash. I wanted something happening. It seemed terribly anticlimactic to me as I was reading the story, which is why I'm glad we have a poet. Two perspectives on one thing help rise from the pages of this season in the life of God's people, the image of a God who is indeed a warrior, who fights for his people and conquers his enemies. This is what God intends for his people to see as this story is rehearsed throughout their life. Look at verse 15, let me show you this. Verse 15 says, the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his army, what's that word? what's the next word? Before. Before. Before Barak. When you and I read the story, even if we use our eyes and we look down and read it across, we expect it in our mind to say that Barak routed Sisera with the help of the Lord. That's what was happening. Barak was the commander of of the Israelites and he was going to battle against Sisera. So when we read about the routing of Sisera, in our minds, what we read is that Barak routed Sisera with the help of the Lord. But that's not what it says. It says the Lord routed Sisera before. Before. Barak. The way it's written, you're meant to see That though Barak leads 10,000 men into battle against what is an impossible machine of war, all he could do was watch as God defeated the armies of Sisera. You get that picture from the songwriter. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 4 says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Eden, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. And then in verse 19, she picks back up. The kings came. The kings fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoil of silver, but from heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, march on my soul with might. You see, here's the the picture that the the writer doesn't give us, that the the prose doesn't give us, the the psalmist, the the songstress, the the poet helps us to see as Sisera and 900 chariots of iron and all of his fighting men rushed along the river valley of Kishon, God, hundreds of miles away, unseen by human eyes, was marshalling all the powers of creation and adjusting the atmospheric pressure almost 300 miles away and riding that change in pressure up the same valley of the Kishon River to the very place at the bottom of Mount Tabor where the armies of Sisera would enclose upon the armies of Israel and at that moment in the middle of the driest season of the year in the life of God's people the heavens dropped it began to storm and as the storm began to fall the rivers began to rise and as the river Kishon begins to rise in an unexpected dry season and floods begin to rage along the waters and fall from the sky, 900 iron chariots become an extreme liability. The stars in the heavens were marshaled by the sovereign hand of God to fight against the armies of Sisera. Darkness. The earth trembles, Shakes and quakes as the Lord, who is a warrior, goes before his people and before the eyes of Barak and 10,000 fighting farmers. God routs the armies of Sisera. It all happened before his eyes. The battle was won. And as this story is told to God's people, and when they gather together and they hear God's word, when families sit around and, and tell the stories of the judges and tell this episode in the life of their ancestors immediately in their mind, they're hearing shades of, of the great deliverance they all look back to, the time when God marshaled all of creation together led his people out of Egypt, parted the waters of the Red Sea so that his people could walk across on dry land and then as they could only watch, God used that water to overwhelm and conquer the mighty army of the Egyptians. And so when you go back to Exodus chapter 14 and 15 this week and read it, you'll see that after God marshaled all of creation to defeat the Egyptians and deliver his people at that time, They wrote a song about it. And in that song, they talked about the Lord who is their warrior, the one who fights for the good of his people. See, God's people had chosen new gods and forgotten the Lord. They had forgotten the Lord who is their warrior, who conquers his enemies on their behalf. And here they are now facing the greatest war machine that history had ever known at that time with 10,000 farmers. And their God marshals all of creation to do before their eyes what they could never do apart from Him and utterly routs the army of Sisera. There's something else happening there. And the poet, the songstress, she's the one that helps us to see it. In in chapter 5, verse 4, it seems like an innocuous detail. But it would have meant something to God's people when they heard it. In verse four, it says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom. Again, I wish, I'm sorry, I didn't put a map up there, but if we put a map up there or you go look at your maps and you look back at the biblical geography here and the names that are mentioned, for God's people as they would hear this story and they would retell this story for generations, there's something else going on here that would have caused their hearts to to swell in what was being said. You see, Edom was part of a southern region of Israel. And the Canaanites, the the, the people of Jabin and, and Sisera, they believed that up in the northern region, there was another group of mountains, and that was the home of Baal. That's where he came from. And Baal, in their history and in their culture, was the god of war and the god of fertility. He was called the cloud monster. He's the one they worshiped and sacrificed to for rains to come, for crops to grow, For enemies to be defeated. When the songstress begins to tell the story of the victory and she says the Lord went out from Seir in the south and marched on the clouds north to do battle. He was going to the home of Baal. And as he was marching forward, we can see with our eyes that he was defeating Sisera and the enemies of God's people on their behalf. But in the heavens, God was winning a much larger cosmic battle. He was showing once and for all who alone is sovereign. He was defeating Baal with his own stuff. You think he controls the heavens? You think he controls war? You think he controls the waters of the sky? Here's the deal. I'll marshal all the forces of creation and beat him with that own thing. The song, it's actually a taunt. As God's people would sing it, it's as though they're saying, how silly and foolish to worship Baal. Yahweh, the one true God, beats him at his own game. You don't worship Baal. There's only one true God. The poem and the prose together begin to paint for God's people in this life of their history a picture of a God who indeed is a warrior and who conquers on their behalf all of his enemies. And together, the two perspectives do something else. They give God's people lenses through which we understand even our own situations. Because as we would see in the story and see in the song, we realize there's always something else going on that we can't see. And so as God's people could see Sisera charging, could see the chariots, could see their fighting farmers, and know on the surface they were no match at all for what it was they were facing. They were meant to remember the Lord who is a warrior, the one who has already gone before them and delivered them and conquered their enemies. They're meant to remember that even what they see with their eyes is not the end of the story. 300 miles away, For his glory and for their good, he was changing atmospheric pressure so at the right moment and the right place, the armies of Cicero would be routed by a flood. He's the one who has always promised, as he had decades and centuries before to their ancestors, to always work together for their good and his glory, what they faced in this life. If they would remember who he really was, they would recognize that what they see with their eyes isn't the sum of the story. And see, so it gives us, you and I, even now, a reminder that if, if we remember, and as we remember who it is that we worship, our God who is indeed a conquering warrior who has promised to go before us and defeat his enemies on our behalf, we remember when we come to him with what we can only see with our eyes. The various circumstances and situations we find ourselves in, and all the ways we think he should act all the outcomes we think we should come to that we can come to him and instead of giving him an agenda to respond to, we can come to him knowing who he is and say, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you up to? What are you working out in this for your glory and for my good? What are you working out in this situation to change me into the image and likeness of your son? And what are you working out here that I can't see for your glory? and the good of your people. Two perspectives, two ways of understanding, knowing that his hand is always at work for his glory and the good of his people. It helps with the rest of the story too. Because remember, Sisera fled on foot, right? God routed the armies, floods came, but this this scoundrel ran away on his foot. Watch this, go back to chapter four, verse 17. Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was a peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Verse 11 seems so strange, didn't it? Why in the middle of the marshalling of God's people and the beginnings of this battle does he tell us about this ancestor of Moses' father-in-law, who had been a part of the people of Israel for generations, now decide to move his tent and move his tent into the middle of nowhere and then not tell us anything about it? Things aren't so random as they seem. God always has a purpose and a plan. Sisera, fleeing the battle, out in the middle of nowhere now, comes to the entrance of this tent. And Heber's wife, Jael, came out to meet Sisera and said to him, "'Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Don't be afraid.'" So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. These were These were her tools. I don't know if you understand this, but it was the responsibility of the women in these tent-dwelling tribes to actually set up and take down the tents. The hammer and the peg, those are her tools. She's very familiar with how to use these things. She takes them into her hands and she goes softly to Sisera. And she drives a peg into his temple until it goes down into the ground while he's laying fast asleep from weariness. And then what seemed like the most unnecessary words in the story, so he died. (laughs) And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come, I'll show you the man whom you're seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. I will give anything one day to see the look on his face when he saw that. The road on which you're going, it's not going to lead to your glory. Ultimately, it's going to lead to the glory of the Lord. Which is why verse 23 is so important in the story. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. Our God is a warrior. He alone conquers, vanquishes, humiliates His enemies. And as a story like this is being told to God's people, it's meant to, again, lift up their eyes that they might remember who the Lord is, that they might not just take the stories and remember the info, but that their life will be lived in the shadow of who they know God to be and what that means for how they live. But there's something else that begins to happen in the heart as you begin to do that. As you begin to recognize who God really is, and you become to listen and recognize that He again is the Lord of war, that He is a warrior, He is a conqueror, He does defeat His enemies. Something else happens in the mind and in the heart, you begin to shudder. You begin to think, I do not want to be an enemy of this God. Shudder at the thought of standing on the other side of this warrior. The songwriter, the end of chapter five, she sings, may all your enemies perish, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Listen friends, there's there's a picture of this all-conquering warrior in this story, in this song, and it's got two sides to it. He conquers his enemies to the uttermost on behalf of his people, but that means that he has a holy and intense hatred for evil. This warrior has an intense hatred of rebellion and idolatry. You've got to recognize this reality about him because if we're really honest, you and I tend to think he's simply mildly irritated by sin. Like you or I might be with a a wool sweater. It bothers him. He'll scratch it until he finally gets frustrated and takes it off. But no, this warrior has a holy and just an intense hatred of evil. And listen to me, that's what you want. You want to serve a God who has an intense hatred for evil. You don't want to serve a God who is only mildly irritated at evil. You want to serve a warrior who has promised and who has delivered on the conquering and vanquishing of his enemies. But here's the problem that that presents. The Bible says that every single one of us was born by nature a children of his wrath. Born enemies of this warrior, the one who's not mildly irritated with our sin. It says, being born by nature children of his wrath, meaning that if we were to come face to face with this warrior, we would come face to face with the end of his sword. That in our sin, his anger and hatred of evil is aimed squarely at us. Friends, that's what makes the gospel such good news. It's not good news if you don't see that. If you don't see him as a warrior who has an intense hatred of evil and you don't recognize that by nature you are a child of his wrath, you stand square face to face apart from Christ at the end of his sword, then the gospel makes no sense to you and it's not good news. Paul tells the church that God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, while we deserved the wrath of this conquering warrior, he sent his son to die for us. All of our sin, all of our rebellion, all the evil, everything that stirs the intensity of his hatred towards sin was placed on his son. And this conquering warrior struck his son instead of me. The spike, it was nailed through his body in my place, and he died. This is the good news because anybody who sees that, who hears that, and who recognizes in heart that I can't stand toe-to-toe with that warrior I can't take that sword. I can't take that wrath. And anyone who by faith recognizes that God took his wrath against sin and placed it upon his son in their place, anyone who by faith believes upon Jesus as that king can know the conquering, gracious love of God and know with certainty for the first time or the first time in a long time that the sword of God's anger is not aimed towards you. That he marshals all of his holiness now for your salvation and deliverance. Friends, that's the gospel. Because of Christ, God is not standing against you. He's standing for you. That his justice and his holiness is now not aimed towards your destruction and judgment. It's aimed towards your salvation and deliverance. The question that's woven through the whole story, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten your God is a warrior and he's conquered his enemies and your enemies to the uttermost? Friends, there's, there's, one, there's one other question that works its way through the story. And I'll introduce it to you this morning and then we'll, we'll tease it apart more next week as we come back to it. But it's simply this. If, if God is your warrior who has defeated your enemies on your behalf and is at all times and in all circumstances working together all things for His glory and your good, when He calls you to battle, will you show up and fight? That's the question God's people are left with through the story. As their eyes are lifted back up upon who God is for them and continues to be for them and all that God continues to do for them through the mysterious hands of his providence for his glory and their good, they're left with the question, when he calls, will you show up? You see, if you go and you read the story, and we'll come back to it more specifically next week, but I want you to see it now. Now. When the call goes out from the prophet of God to Barak to raise men from Israel to go and do battle with Sisera, knowing and remembering who God is for them and who he's been for them and continues to be for them was meant to mean that every man in Israel would grab his plow, would grab his sickle, would grab his knife, would get on his donkey and head towards the mound knowing that they were going to do battle against the greatest war machine they had ever seen but that God was going to win. That God's enemies were their enemies. And that if God had said go, they go. Because God had promised to win, which means they could go and fight. But that's not what happened. The poet clues us in in chapter 5. As men from various tribes showed up to fight, just as God had called, there were men from other tribes who looked around at their own interests. I got flocks, I've got boats. I've got ports. It's better for me to stay here and and take care of my own interests. The enemies of the Lord were no longer enemies of mine. So when he calls out with decisive victory, I'm going to stay and keep my eyes on my own interests. Friends, as I think about this church and we're coming up on nine years in January and we're taking a year to think about what the future looks like for us and celebrating 10 years down the road and trying to understand who God has made us to be. I'm humbled every single time I think about all the varied gifts and talents and and opportunities and callings that God has put into this church. But if we look down the road and we look back on the life of Redemption Hill at some point and see that things had come undone, it's not because we didn't have the ability or we didn't have the skills. It's because God's people simply didn't show up. It's because we didn't have the availability when he called. See, the enemies of God are meant to be the enemies of his people and we know on this side of the cross that the enemies of God's people are no longer flesh and blood but their powers and principalities and darkness and we know that God has given us his spirit and everything we need for life and godliness now to do battle with what we face and it's easy to marshal up people and to marshal up energy and to get a crowd for everything facing us outside and yes and amen for all of that but will God's people show up? when the enemy of God's people stands at the door and seeks to devour the unity that God bought for his people by his blood. All the things that happen in the world around us, yes and amen to all the ways that God gives us ability and skill to go and see justice served and needs met. But there's one thing the devil hates more than anything else. And that's the unity of God's people Well, God's people show up when God calls them to fight for the thing that he purchased at the price of his son. The psalmist said how good and pleasant it is when the people of God, brothers, sisters, family, dwell in unity. Paul says that everybody is meant to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Peter said that we're mean to let our love be genuine, to abhor what is evil. The enemies of God are meant to be the enemies of his people. We're to abhor the evil, the slander, the gossip, the innuendo that seeks to devour God's people and hold fast to what's good. To love each other with a brotherly affection, Paul said, to outdo one another in showing honor. Are we gonna show up? Are we gonna fight? are we going to allow innuendo and, and gossip and slander to splinter God's people rather than seeking to outdo one another in showing honor? Friends, if there's something that's going to undo us in the days, years, and decades to come, it will, it will come at the hands of allowing assumptions about one another, to satisfy us rather than having conversations with one another. It'll be when we allow slander and innuendo about one another to satisfy us without making the sacrifice of actually getting to know one another. Friends, he's a conquering king. He has defeated his enemies and our enemies of Satan, sin, and death for us by his son. At the cost of his son, he has made rebels and traitors, sons and daughters. He's made us one new people, a family for his own love and possession. He's given us everything we need in his son and by his spirit for life and godliness in this world when he calls us to show up for what matters. Will we show up? Friends, he has already started the work of reconciling all things to himself. He started that when he turned the sword of his justice towards his son in our place. This morning, we get to remember as God's people and respond to the good news of the gospel that our sin and our rebellion and our evil that stirs his anger was placed on his son. He's already in Christ started reconciling all things to himself. And we're reminded this morning as we receive communion together that we born his enemies, children of his wrath. He by grace is now made sons and daughters. Friends, when you receive communion to, this morning as a follower of Christ, I want you to remember, it, rem- I want you to remember that he showed up. He showed up and took the sword that you and I deserved for your salvation. This morning, as you have a moment to reflect before we receive communion, I want you to reflect on God's word, and I want you to ask him, what are you doing right now in the circumstances of my life that I can only see with my eyes, but help me to see what you're up to? What are you up to? Where are you changing me? What are you doing? How are you conforming me to the image and likeness of your son through this? And secondly, where do you want me to show up? Where do you want me out of confidence in who you are and what you're doing? Where do you want me to show up? Where do I need to go and talk? Where do I need to go and confess? Where do I need to go and reconcile? Where do you, where do you want me to show up? And, friends, this morning as you've received communion, remember that he showed up in your place for your sin. For the first time or the first time in a long time, let it be a moment. Let it be a moment of overwhelming joy for you. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to give you just a couple of minutes to reflect, and then we're going to respond, and we're going to sing. And we're going to be sent out from here as his people together. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That you go before us, that you are a warrior who fights on our behalf, that you win the battle against Satan, sin, and death for us, and then you give us everything we need for life and godliness to your glory and our good in this, this gift of your spirit. God, this morning help us, help us to lift our eyes to see you, to know you as our conquering king and warrior and to delight with our whole heart that your justice is now aimed for us and our good. Lord, we ask this morning that you would exalt your son and your grace. We ask that you would do it in his name. Amen.